0: Hello, creatives. I'm Joanna Penn, and this is episode number 444, all the fours, (laughs) of the podcast. And it's Friday, 8th of August, 2019, as I record this. So in this episode, I'm talking about transitioning to a full-time creative career with Blair Palmer and the challenges that may face you on the journey if you decide to follow this path. Now, of course you don't need to be a full-time creative. It's definitely a challenge. <laughs> but if you um, do want to go this way, and of course, I left my job in 2011. And uh, in this show, I will I do talk about my first year in particular, which is a tough time. And I have said to those of you um, who I've talked to about this, you, you almost need to white knuckle that first six months at least before you can find your routine, your mindset, your money management, your productivity, all of it is a challenge if you're coming out of a day job so I spent. I started writing properly for publication in 2006. I started building up this website in 2008, and then started the podcast 2009. So and then I finally left my job in 2011. So I know what it's like to transition over a period of years. It basically took me five years. Um, I do not like financial risk, so I made sure. Um, you know, we downsized. We cut our debt we did all the things that mean that meant that it was not uh, I mean it was still difficult but when I look back now it wasn't very risky so yeah I think we'll talk about that in the show but also some of the other things that might come up for you if you do want to um, change to a creative career now of course I think it's worth it (laughs) I love what I do and in fact everything I do now is about well no not everything I do but a lot of what I do is about thinking about the future so that I never have to go back to a day job. In fact, at this point, I'm probably unemployable. (laughs) And in fact, unemployable is a podcast I would like to recommend. Um, If you are interested in becoming a a full-time creative um, author, entrepreneur, anything where you want to keep having a small business, small in numbers, so just you, for example, or you and your partner, um, but you want to make good money. So they have this idea of seven-figure small on unemployable, which I've been on a couple of times, so you can hear me on there, uh, along with people like Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin. So I'm always quite pleased I was on that show. <laughs> so that is all about building a sustainable business that you love um, with no employees or very few contractors and still make great money. So that's unemployable podcast. In publishing and book marketing news, I am giddy today because Google has just announced that they are indexing podcasts. Now, this is huge for those of us in the voice space. And I have said that this would happen and I, I guess I didn't expect it to happen so soon. But essentially, voice is very hard to index because, you, you have to transcribe it in some way so it becomes searchable. Now, I have show notes, I have a transcript on the show, but um, Google has basically announced that they are going to include podcasts in search at and have playable results in search. Now, it is just for English language in the USA right now. So I can't test this, but I'd love to know if you test it, like have a search for this show, like one of my episodes um, and see what happens to see how that search has changed. But basically, it means two things. All of the voice content that, that has been created is going to be searchable now and going forward which is great because so far, if you've had a podcast, you have not been able to be found very easily. But secondly, just think about the amount of voice they are reading into their systems to do this. Now, you probably, uh, it's part of the the terms and conditions when you uh, sign up for various services. Now, Google has Google Podcast, which again, I can't get into because it's US only. Um, But also Google Assistant is global. And all of this to me is part of the voice first movement in that the more voices they're reading into the search engine, the more they're going to be able to Uh, index and to be able to learn. So this all feeds into voice AI as far as I'm concerned. So I am feeling pretty pretty giddy about it because of course I've got 444 episodes of audio plus I have 13 episodes at Books and Travel uh, starting again over there with that show. Um, But clearly I also think that being prescient about voice early on has definitely helped me with my author career selling books. Um, Many of you guys have bought books, but many of you also support the show um, on Patreon. So yeah, very, very, very exciting. So if you Well, obviously you listen to podcasts, you're listening to this. (laughs) But if you haven't considered podcasting for book marketing, now whether that's starting your own podcast or going on other people's podcasts, that can often be the best way to get started, then I think maybe it's time to consider that. Podcasting is about to go boom, So the other thing this week is that uh, yesterday, as I record this, the deal for Barnes & Noble went through with Elliott Management. Now, I mentioned this earlier on um, a couple of months ago, whenever it was when the deal came up, but that has now gone through. So Elliott Management is a hedge fund, and I find this... Just so fascinating. I do read a lot of the Financial Times. I'm, I, I read a lot of financial news. And to me, a hedge fund, well, to anyone, a hedge fund is not a company that runs a business for the long term. Their whole goal is to make a return, to, recruit, to recoup its investment hopefully a hundredfold, a thousandfold, however many fold, but their whole purpose is making money from these investments. So it's not like, oh yeah, business as usual, Barnes & Noble run as it is, we have someone who's going to look after it. Uh Uh-uh, that is not what's happening. So um, first of all, Elliot Management also owns Waterstones here in the UK and the um, guy they've now put in charge, James Daunt, is well known in British publishing. He has overseen Waterstones in the UK. He owned a. Uh, he has Daunt Books, which was his own bookstore before that. And also, he comes from the banking industry. So, I think this is all quite interesting. Now, I can tell you, as someone who has, uh, so when Elliott Management got bought Waterstones here, must have been about two years ago now. I'll tell you a couple of things that happened, so that if you are in the US and interested in Barnes and Noble, these are some of the things that may happen. Now, I'm not saying they will happen. I'm just saying this is what might happen. So first of all, uh, the water, if you go into a Waterstones in the UK, they're very well laid out. Uh, you know, if you go onto a website and everything's really cluttered and you click away because it's too cluttered. Well, that's how I feel in a Barnes & Noble in the US. Now, maybe that's not true in every Barnes & Noble, but generally my feeling in a Barnes & Noble is this is too cluttered. I don't know where to go, what to do. And it's Not got enough white space, not got enough thinking room. Whereas I go into a Waterstones and I go into a Waterstones probably three or four times a week. There's one down the road. Um, I have my loyalty card. I go there quite a lot. Um, I also buy from independent bookstores, uh, but I, I do buy from Waterstones and it's very inviting environment. It's open, it's spacious. And whenever I go in, there's usually some new books out on the various stands. So, also, James Daunt, when he uh, started with Waterstones, he returned a whole lot of stock. So, what I see, the first one is I would expect that U.S. publishing arms are going to get a ton of returns because if you look, if you go into a Barnes and Noble and you think, what would happen if they took out thirty percent of books in here? Would that make it much better experience for the customer? Yes, it probably would. <laughs> so. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of returns and that is going to impact publishers and traditionally published authors. Secondly, he uh, made things a local focus. So some of the Waterstones in the UK are even branded like a local bookstore. Um, they're trying to get that feeling of locality. So the um, what this might mean, I think, is if, you, if you're a local Indian, you have relationships with your local Barnes & Noble, it may be that they even more, um, are open to having your books, to stopping, stocking your books because the focus is on local. So that's interesting. The other thing is that Daunt, uh, James Daunt focuses on physical sales. He has actually said, you know, it's it's good to be a physical bookseller uh, at this time. And even though Waterstones briefly had Kindles in their store, in 2016, they moved digital customers to Kobo. So what will happen to Nook? I really, really hope Kobo are in there right now having a chat. Um, I just can't see them continuing with Nook. Um, I think that will go to Kobo, maybe. Who else? I don't know who it might go to. Probably won't go to Amazon. <laughs> Uh, And the other thing they did, which is really interesting, is they used to have these uh, paper cards for loyalty in the stores and then they transitioned to um, electronic uh, loyalty cards and a very, very good email marketing strategy. I have been very impressed with Waterstone's emails in the last uh, six months, I guess, since Elliot really uh, changed things. And I click on them. They have lots of competitions. It's very engaging. It's very beautiful. They have a lot of signed editions. Uh, So yeah, email is going to be a big play that I'm not sure how strong Barnes & Noble are in this right now, but I think that this will become uh, a bigger thing over there too. And maybe this is a data play at the end of the day. So very interesting times for Barnes & Noble. Uh, If you... Yeah, I guess if you know, uh, none of us can know anything, but I'm interested to know what you think. So, as ever, tweet me at the Creative Pen or leave a comment on this on the show notes uh, on this episode because this is an interesting time. And then finally, big publishers are changing the library lending rates for eBooks and audiobooks, making it more expensive for libraries to buy or license digital copies. So, um, and I'll link to the post in the Authors Guild about this. This is a very uh, traditionally published focused discussion. Basically, traditional publishers do uh, obviously license books to libraries and uh, often those are very expensive. And uh, what they're basically saying is that it needs to be expensive because it cannibalizes sales. Now, I don't know, my opinion as an indie is completely different and my opinion of digital is completely different. I have this abundance mentality around digital. Um, I have books in libraries, you can uh, you can go into your library and request my books and they should be on the uh, systems. And of course, if you publish wide, you can get your books into libraries. If you are exclusive to Amazon, your books will not be in libraries. um, Because yeah, it's a closed ecosystem with a paywall. Now I love having books in libraries. I as a um, when I was growing up, I used to spend a lot of time in libraries. I don't so much these days. um, I tend to buy my own or license my own, but I absolutely like to support libraries. So that's why I have my books available there. Now you can get to libraries uh, through Draft2Digital, have a per checkout model for ebook library lending. Findaway Voices have the same for audio, which I really love and I'm getting money from that now. So if you get one of my audiobooks through a library, I still get paid. So it's bonus for you and cheaper for the library. And you can also reach Overdrive through Kobo Writing Life as their owner Rakuten owns both companies. Um, I think you can also get in through PublishDrive as well. But essentially that per checkout model, I know Draft2Digital and Find Findaway do specifically. So I love that. I think, I just think it's brilliant because instead of the library having to pay Fifty dollars uh, for a Tradpod book or thirty dollars, or I only put mine at fifteen dollars, I think if they want to buy it, but for if they want it per checkout it's a very small micro payment and it means they can have it available in their in their library system and uh they just pay a small amount per checkout so I think the paper checkout model is what libraries should be doing in order to make the most of the the budgets that they have um so I don't know, I, I just feel like the whole library and digital and indie relationship has not really been there. It's not been very easy uh, so far, but I think this may start to change things. If traditional publishers are saying, well, you can't have our books unless you pay more money, then this may be a time for indies to uh, step in there and say, hey, you can get ours for a paper checkout model. So yeah. Go ask your local library, go and order a indie book paper checkout uh, from your local library. If you're a librarian, um, maybe that is something that might interest you. In futurist stuff this week, I did an interview on the Alliance of Independent Authors podcast about AI and the indie author or artificial intelligence and the indie author. Uh, So basically, you know, I did the show a couple of months ago now on nine ways that AI will disrupt publishing and authors. Well, this was Orna Ross asking me specific questions about some of the things that are most interesting. And of course, I talk about my experiments with AI translation, which is happening it is in process the first book is with beta readers um, has been through uh, an editor so it's not just AI to beta readers uh, it has gone through an edit But this is a really interesting development. So you can check that out, selfpublishingadvice.org forward slash artificial dash intelligence, or I'll link to it in the show notes or just search on your podcast app for, if you search for Orna Ross, you'll get the Ally podcast, Ask Ally. And our episode is beginning of August 2019 on artificial intelligence and the indie author. Just a quick personal update. Uh, this week, I finished recording and editing the audiobook of Public Speaking for Authors, Creatives and Other Introverts, which is now a second edition. <laughs> so that will be out uh, later on. I'm going to try and get everything out at the same time. So it's quite exciting. That is with the lovely Dan for Mastering. I also posted on the blog how this I am the thing I am in right now my home audio booth that is on the blog now so you can see the pictures of where I am and what equipment and how much it costs so uh, again links in the show notes or just search the creative pen audio booth setup um So if you want to get into audiobooks or podcasting, then check it out. And I also link to a blog post about portable studios. So if you can't have a permanent setup like I have, although this is not permanent, it's just a wooden frame uh, that I can take down if we move house. So it's not like a thing, a permanent setup. But uh, yeah, anyway, so go check that out. I've also been basically scheduling things because I'm off to podcast movement in Florida. So I've never been to Orlando. So I'm very happily child free. The thought of going to Orlando, Florida is not something I ever thought I would do. Orlando... I've had a look at Orlando online and to see if there's anything I might want to visit apart from this conference. (laughs) And there is a um, bone museum. So I might end up there. (laughs) But everywhere else, I'm like, ah, Um, I might make it to the aquarium as well, because I like aquariums. But yeah, it is school holidays. So I'm just like, oh, my goodness, Yes, might be crazy in Orlando. I don't know why they're having it there. But anyway, that's where I'm going. And podcast movement looks to be fantastic. Now, it's very interesting how things are changing in podcasting. So I didn't even know until this week that people were charging for interviews. So I just wanted to, and I've started having pictures from people saying that they will pay to come on this show. And I've gone, uh, no, you can't pay to come on this show. You can pay to be a sponsor. Absolutely. Uh, if you're a company that I work with. But basically, I don't do paid podcast interviews. So I want it and you can't pay to write an article on my blog either. It has to be uh, a guest post and you have to be someone who fits with my audience. So if, but it, this is fascinating. The monetization of podcasting has is just going crazy a bit like blogging uh, did a few years back. So I'm very interested to see how the business models for podcasts will work. I would obviously, as I've said to you, if you're a patron of the show, I would much prefer. Uh, you know, I love Patreon. I think it's that's the way I want to go. And in fact, I'm going to a workshop on um, with Patreon when I get there. So yeah, I'm very interested to see how this is going to go. Uh, These types of conferences on podcasting did not exist when I started podcasting in 2009. And the schedule looks great. So I will be bringing all that back. Um, They also have a digital ticket. So which I have also bought because there's so many sessions, I won't be able to get to all of them. If you want to know about this stuff, you can get a digital ticket. So um, a virtual ticket. So that might be interesting. Okay, so thanks for all your emails and tweets. Oh, I should say, sorry, that was podcastmovement.com. I think it is. Or just search podcast movement uh, virtual ticket. Okay, so yes, thanks for all your emails and tweets. Stephen P. Easler says, just finished a workout while listening to a podcast by Joanna Penn. I'm feeling healthy and inspired. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Corey Corrie Shrum says, love the show on content marketing and the importance of knowing where you are in your business. Thank you for the reminder. And yeah, that is super important. Uh, Angeline Trevina said, listening to the podcast while crafting a dice for my six-year-old and sent a lovely picture of said dice, which looked lovely. Uh, And... uh, Alexa Big Wolf says, oh, my gosh, I laughed out loud at your if you have a problem statement in the July podcast. <laughs> now you all solve it is stuck in my head. <laughs> Sorry to everyone. I've just put that back in your head. <laughs> uh, and yeah, finally. Um, yeah. Oh, here's what, here's, yeah, I'm just sorry, I was scrolling down here. Christian Perfumo says, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most reputable creative writing schools in Barcelona has included one of your books in the bibliography of a course on the prolific writer, which is very exciting for me. Um, and of course, that's in. Spanish. And I, Spanish is going to be next on my list after, after German. So after this year, um, I will look at Spanish as my next uh, language. So very excited about that. Okay. I always love to hear from you on Twitter or in the comments on the show notes. So tweet me at the creative pen with a double N or put a link, um, come and put a comment in the show notes. That would be fab. So today's show is sponsored by my own audiobooks. If you want to transition to being a full-time creative, check out How to Make a Living with Your Writing and Business for Authors, How to Be an Author Entrepreneur, available in audio and other formats, and also the healthy writer you know you want to. Because if you sit at your desk all day, you are going to get lower back pain. I know. I've been there. I was at yoga this morning in order to essentially... I go to yoga what, two or three times a week to maintain... <laughs> my physical health. And it really helps with lower back pain. So yes, the healthy writer, lots of tips there. And also the successful author mindset to get you through the tough times. And uh, there will be some, I can guarantee you that. But yes, it's worth it. So learn on the go, take your author business to the next level. Just search Joanna Penn on your favourite audiobook app and get into some audiobooks. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship or spend spend some money on my products, shout out, (laughs) pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Uh, Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks to new patrons, Denise Gaskins, NC Manda, Alexa Bigwarf and Alice Phelan. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue even after 10 years. (laughs) And some days I do get tired. (laughs) But as long as this is useful, I'm going to keep doing it. So uh, I also put out the monthly Q&A audio this week, which is to patrons only. We looked at questions around editing, more details on AI and a pretty personal in-depth look at how I make money in my business because someone asked me a question and I probably went off on a little rant. (laughs) So all part of the patron-only experience available to you at only $2 a month on the basic level or obviously as much as you like if you'd like to support me some more. So go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get on with the interview. Blair Palmer is an author, coach, professional speaker, and podcaster at a A former BBC journalist and radio producer, Blair helps people escape the day job and work on what they truly love. And her books include The Hyper-Creative Personality and The Recipe for Success. So welcome, Blair. Hi. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. So just start by telling us a bit more about you and how your own work experiences have led you to where you are now.
1: Sure. Well, I started life as a journalist I'd always wanted to be a broadcaster. Um, Well, I had wanted to be an actor before that. But then when I gave up on being an actor, I wanted to be a broadcaster. And so my first career was with the BBC. I was a producer on Radio 4 for the Today programme and for Women's Hour. Um, And, you know, I kind of had the job of my dreams in my 20s, except the reality was that it wasn't like it was in my dreams. Um, So I realized I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like the stress. I didn't like the culture. And yeah, it it turned out not to be for me. I didn't like being part of an institution. So when I was 30, I left the BBC to start my own coaching business. And we're talking 20 years ago now. This was 2000. Um, I started training in 1999, left in 2000. So coaching was a really, really new thing at that time. No one had heard of it. I was one of the first coaches, accredited coaches in Europe. Um, And I've spent the last 20 years developing that business. And as you say, writing books about it, speaking um, and, and developing a real expertise around leadership and particularly the future of leadership. What kind of leaders do we need in business today and in future? And how does that differ from the kind of leaders we've needed in the past?
0: Mm, fantastic. So we're going to come back to like your own business model in, in a bit. But um, one of the things I was interested in is you help people, um, c- you know, quit their job. That's one of the things you do. And many of my listeners do want to quit their jobs and make a living with their writing. But of course, you don't just hand your notice in day one and then get going day two. So let's start by talking about the transition because sometimes it, it, it should be should be really slow. So what are your um t- tips on, on transition while still working a day job? Well, this is really interesting. So
1: I said that my expertise is leadership, which it is, but I realized from coaching a lot of these leaders that many of them were very unhappy in corporate life and would have loved to leave and do something else. And so that's why I started a separate business, helping people do that. And the the transition out of corporate, particularly when you've been doing it for a long time, you know, two decades, maybe three decades of working in corporate, the transition is not simple. You think that you know how business runs because you've been in the business world for 30 years, but actually running your own business outside of that corporate structure is totally different. And one of the things that I encourage everybody to do that I'm working with on that is to transition out. So whilst you might be tempted to storm into your boss's office and hand in your resignation letter and then find yourself a month down the line, sitting in your home office going, okay, now what? Um, It's not very sensible, not unless you've got a lot of money behind you, which most of us don't. So really the, the ideal scenario is to start developing your new venture before you leave. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that from the, the the side hustle. Everyone's talking about the side hustle these days. So really setting up a, a business as a separate thing that you do in your free time, your weekends um, and your evenings or first thing in the morning before you go to work and starting to generate income from it before you leave. So testing out your business model, testing out your market, testing that you like it. That's one way to do it. And in the end, that's definitely what you should do. But you don't need to start with that. You can volunteer. So this really makes sense to to volunteer doing the thing that you eventually would like to do uh, for a living. Um, there's all sorts of ways that you can start to get your foot in the door and start creating that business and creating the audience that you're eventually going to sell to before you leave. And I think that is critical.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, um, some of those things, creating an audience is super important, but it was interesting for me when I first left my job, um, is that I immediately felt like I needed to put back a physical space routine and a commute because the groove I had got into over 13 years in corporate was I commute to work. And so I ended up commuting to a library uh, in order to work surrounded by other people. So what can people do about those routines that may actually serve them when during that transition?
1: Yeah, I actually think the routines are really important. And yes, one of the things that running your own business gives you is flexibility. But most of us don't know what to do with it. So especially at the beginning. So I think if you're used to working a nine to five, then work a nine to five. Eventually that routine will break down. You'll. I remember I must have been in the first few months of working for myself. Uh, I'd, I'd left the BBC and I had my own little um, office at home and I had to post a letter. And so I was sort of, I never run anywhere, but I was sort of doing that half walk, half run thing up the street to go to the post office to get a stamp so that I could get back to my desk, you know, because I'm meant to be working. And as I was trotting up the street, I thought to myself, hang on a minute, nobody cares (laughs) if I'm at my desk or not. Nobody knows. I work for myself now. And so I forced myself to slow down, just walk to the post office, post the letter, walk back, maybe have a cup of tea before I sit down, you know. But it was so ingrained in my genes that, Any time away from your desk is, you know, somebody is going to think that you're slacking. And I think that I'd only been in the workplace for 10 years at that point. I think if you've been in the workplace for 20 years or 30 years, then that's even more hardwired. So if you like a routine, stick to a routine. If you want to separate home and work, then Go and work in a co-working space or rent yourself a little office space or work from a cafe or the library or wherever it is that, that feels like an appropriate place for you. There's no need to break all of your habits all at once.
0: Yeah, and you're. I think you're right about the co-working space. Um, that's why I ended up going to a library. So as an introvert, I don't need people. But what I realised is that I kind of needed to be in the world in some way. And I still work in a cafe with noise cancelling headphones uh, when I when I write. So that need for community as well I think is something that's super important so how how, you know apart from say a co-working space are there other things that people should do around building a community in the new world
1: yeah there are a few different communities that I think you need Um, and this is whether you're an introvert or extrovert It, it, it doesn't matter everybody needs to belong to some sort of network or some sort of community and there's a few reasons for that so the first kind of community that I think you need is um, is a sort of professional community, people who are doing something similar to you and are either at the same stage as you or a little bit further on or quite a lot further on so that you can learn from their experiences. You don't have to invent the wheel. Uh, You can, people want to share with you the mistakes they made and give you advice and and why on earth wouldn't you be part of that? So that's one very important network that makes you feel like you're not on your own. Another sort of community that's really important is a a network of people that are interested in what you're doing because they might become customers or clients, they might end up buying it. Um, And I think that we neglect, if you're not used to working for yourself, um you neglect that community. Um, and I think the earlier you can start to create that tribe around you, that gang of people who like what you do and are helped by what you do, the better. And then I think there's another community which is which is more general but sort of very friendly. so this is this is your buddies, this is your family. this is the people who believe in you and and have your back and tell you, on those days when you wake up and think, I think I've made the biggest mistake of my life, they're the ones that tell you, No, you haven't. You've got this. You're gonna, you're gonna do it. How can I help you? Um, and you need those people too. And and you know, may, and maybe colleagues, maybe people that you sit next to when you're working, or you see every morning, at, at, you know, as you're picking up your cup of tea that you know at the coffee shop. The, the, those kind of regular interactions are nice too. Personally. That's never been important to me, but I know that for some people, actually, they really miss having buddies that they see every day, somebody to sit with at lunch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, when I left, there, the co working thing wasn't such a, a big thing. Um, but it's interesting. I think also, I remember when I started to build my side hustle, I was going to a lot of networking things in order to meet other people in business because I found that my friendship group at my day job. Those people didn't even understand the idea of running their own business. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, the people who love you um, and your existing friends might not be the people in your uh, in your new friendship group.
1: It's true, and and actually sometimes they're the worst people to talk to as your as your friends mm. and family because mm. they're worried for you. You know their their own fears come up and they they want you to be safe and they don't necessarily understand what you're doing. And it's very foreign to them. Um, my dad still after 20 years of me being in business, just really doesn't know how, why anybody would would do anything other than work for the civil service. You know, he just can't understand why you take that sort of risk. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. You need people around who, who are business people, who understand the roller coaster, who know what it's like when you don't have any business and it's terrifying. Um, And also, um, yeah, they just, you feel like you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. You're not on your own Lots of people are doing this. They're having the same experiences. They're making it work, and that's really inspiring.
0: Mm, yeah, and it's um, it's interesting. You mentioned fear there, and sometimes it can be terrifying. And I think that's that is uh, something. And I often tell people, look, you have to white knuckle the first six months because you're going to feel like running back <laughs> to to the day job. So, what are some of the other mindset shifts needed to go from an employee to running your own business?
1: Yeah, I think this is really the big I think people think that it's all practical stuff you need to do when you leave Um, and that if you've got a business plan and a marketing plan and, you know, all those sort of things in place, you've built your website and all of that, then you're ready. But actually, it's the inner journey that you then go on that is the toughest aspect of running a business and the thing that will change you. You know, you will be changed as a result of this. I think the first challenge, and don't forget, not everybody who leaves their corporate job does so because they've always had a a burning desire to run their own business. Some of them, and a lot of people that I meet, um, they kind of feel like they'd rather have a job, but the job that they want to do doesn't exist, or they don't feel they fit in corporate life anymore, or and they're fed up with the politics and all of that. So they're slightly reluctant entrepreneurs. They're not necessarily natural business people, Um, but of all the options available, this is the best option. And, And so particularly for them, these things are true. Firstly, putting yourself out there. Now you may well have stood up in front of a bunch of very senior people in your organization, or you might have been in sales, or you might have had to be outside of your comfort zone. But even if you messed it up, you still got paid. Whereas when you're out on your own, you, your performance when you're addressing a potential client or when you're um, when you're giving a presentation or whatever it might be, that that's money. If you mess that up, you might not win the contract or the client or whatever it is. So there's this extra challenge. Besides the fact it's very personal, people tell you it's business. It's not personal, but it is. So you're personally putting yourself out there. This is you, your business, your baby, your reputation. And I think a a big surprise for a lot of people is how uncomfortable they are talking about themselves and talking about what they're doing and selling it to people. So that's one of the biggest shifts to make is to get comfortable with that.
0: Mm. Yeah, and many authors obviously struggle with uh, marketing. They think they shouldn't have to do marketing, and even if you know, even if they have a traditional publisher, they're going to have to do some marketing. So you are right; that's a a really big deal. The other thing I think is that when you are an employee, you you don't really have the freedom, but as you say, you might not want the freedom, um, and there are pros and cons of that freedom. So um, you know, what I guess are the are the pros and cons of having your own business versus uh, have uh, being an employee.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the big advantage of being an employee is the security. Now, it's a little overrated in that not as who has a job is that secure, in fact. And as we know, you can be made redundant or you can be moved into a job you don't particularly like. And, you know, so it's not as secure as it used to be. But nonetheless, you pretty much OK. And you can see stuff coming if if there's danger on the horizon. Whereas when you own your own business, you're very much living by your wits Um, and there will be times, I mean, you mentioned the first six months, there've been times in my 20 years, way beyond the first six months where my business was not healthy. I I think that you're, you, it seems to me like every five to seven years, there's some sort of crisis in my business and I have to pivot and reinvent. So the downside is you're living by your wits, but the upside is you're living by your wits. (laughs) So you, you get to change it if you realize what you're doing is not working, you can just change it. You can pivot, you can, you can create a new product, you can re-niche yourself, uh, you can just madly start bashing the phones, you write a new book, you know, whatever it is, it's completely in your control. And that aspect of it I really like, whereas you are slightly, well, you're very disempowered in an organization. You know It's one of the reasons that people leave is they feel disempowered.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what I was thinking about this the other day, one of the other things is when you're an employee. Um, sure, there's a, a hierarchy, and you can move up the chain and earn more money over time. But essentially, you're paid an amount per month, and it doesn't matter how amazing you are or how much harder you might work than someone else. You still get paid the same amount of money. Whereas I feel like with as being being um, out here on our own as such, there is no limit. And I was saying to my husband the other day, it would drive me nuts now. To not be able to scale my income whenever I wanted, like I know I can do X and make X if I just want to make more money that month. So, like we just bought a house and I went went hard on you know getting money for the deposit. So you can, whereas when you're an employee, you you can't change your baseline, right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And I think you know again, there's pros and cons
1: to that. You know, one of the big Uh, mindset shifts you have to make when you leave corporate is you have to change your relationship with money. Because when you have a job, you get paid regularly. Yes, there is a cap that there'll be an amount of money that someone in your kind of job gets in your company. And no matter how well you do at it, there is a limit. Um, And there's a limit in your organization. If you make it to CEO, there'll be a limit to how much money you can make. But, But when you're outside, of course, there is no limit if you're clever and you've got something that works and you know how to generate money from it there's really no limit to how much you can earn but the relationship with it changes because it's because it's less secure because it's less predictable and you can do this is what I mean about my business going through cycles I can do all the things I've always done that have always resulted in business new business for me and then they stop working and your—that's because the market's changed, um, or because the you've saturated the market potentially. Or I mean, very often it's the market's changed. So one of the things that's happened recently is that niching has become, and niching within your niche mm-hmm. has become criti- like absolutely vital for a business. When I started coaching, you just be a coach. You could be a life coach or an executive coach or a business coach. And because there were so few, you filled your practice. It was not hard. Whereas now you have to be, a divorce coach for women or you have to be a manifestation coach for 22 year old digital nomads or, you know, you like you really, really have to go. <laughs> and if you, if you don't, um if you don't spot that something like that, a trend happening in the market, um y- you can find yourself just out on a limb with no business and you have to fix it really really fast but as we've said it's in your power to fix it Mm -hmm. you just have to be alert and you have to be believe in yourself enough to say all right this has happened how do i fix it what what are my options how do i turn this thing around
0: yeah, I think you're right, and uh, the same has happened. I mean, obviously, I've been in self-publishing, for example, for ten years, and we've seen in the last eighteen months pretty much you now have to pay for advertising. Before then, you didn't necessarily have to do paid ads, but that's something that has dramatically changed in the last eighteen months. And many people, uh, and before that, it was uh, Kindle Unlimited, which you know decimated a lot of people's uh, you know income. And you're right; we always have to be learning. And that's actually one of the things I love about being an entrepreneur is that you, you, you do have to be learning all the time. And if you're not, you are going to struggle. Um, versus when I was in a, a day job, I just did the same thing all the time. And it was super repetitive um, and boring. But I wonder, like, what are some of the other practical business things that people need to learn?
1: Well, I think that the marketing and particularly the social media marketing is really, really important now. We didn't exist when I left 20 years ago. I got an advert in I got an article published in the newspaper and that filled my business for a while. Um, it just doesn't work like that now. So really understanding social and understanding how to create community, um, Facebook groups, you know, that kind of stuff, um, social media advertising algorithms. <laughs> I mean, you know. That stuff is really important now, and there are a lot of people out there claiming to be able to help you, um, and not all of them can. So you have to be also quite savvy about who am I going to allow to teach this to me or who am I going to employ to do this because everyone claims they know the secret sauce. Um, So I, I think that the marketing piece, particularly social marketing, is very important. Obviously, your finances, understanding how the finances in your business work is really important. I was doing a coaching session for someone this week and I said, how much money do you live? You need to live on. She didn't know. I said, how much money do you have do you average turnover a year? She didn't know. I said, well, let's pick a number. What do you think your, your margin is? She didn't know. <laughs> well, that's why we're working together. But the point is that you, you really need to know your numbers and you need to know how money works and how much Work you need to do, or how much product you need to sell in order to live, and it's very different. Especially if you're selling your time, it's a bit different. If you're writing books, I think, um, and in a good way. But if you're selling your time, a lot of people think, "Well, I can't, I can't charge a thousand pounds a day for my time." If mean, one thing, I don't need a thousand pounds a day. I don't need twenty thousand pounds a month. You know, well, no you don't, but you're not going to get a thousand pounds a day for 20 days a month. You're going to get three or four thousand pound days a month. And out of that, you have to pay all of your business overhead plus your tax. So actually, a thousand isn't even enough. <laughs> you need to be charging two or three thousand pounds a day if because it takes you four days to win one day of work. So, and sometimes people who haven't been in business before can look at the money side of things and think, God, that seems like a lot. You know, if I sell a book for £10 and I sell a thousand of them, that's £10,000. Who needs 10000 Well you do need ten thousand pounds because it's not all yours, <laughs> and you need to, you know, there's all the cost of sale in that, as if, as you said, the cost of advertising and all of that, and and the tax and blah blah blah, and then selling a thousand books is quite hard, so it takes a lot of effort and time, and all that money has to have has to pay yourself back for all that all that time. So understanding the money really really important, and then I would say um, prioritising. It's not strictly a a business skill, but there are a million ways that you could spend your time. And the most important way to spend your time is on activities that will bring you in money or activities that you get paid for. And the the easiest thing to do is all the other stuff, (laughs) anything else. Writing blogs and going for coffee with people and (laughs) networking new products and blah blah blah. Yeah, networking. Let's go to another. Doing courses. Oh my goodness, doing more courses. Um, Actually, the number one thing when you wake up in the morning, your question should be: How do I make some money today? How what do I need to do today that that ultimately is either going to bring me money today or bring me money in the near future? Um, And everything else is secondary to that. And that's all about. Of course you need to balance that with the long term planning otherwise you won't have a business in 6 months time or 12 months but really the prioritizing is is a critical skill i think
0: that's actually really funny because on my wall next to me i've got a number of you know things to motivate myself but one of them says what can i create today that impacts my long term wealth and legacy <laughs> that's brilliant that's right
1: well, there's that, no better
0: question than that <laughs> <laughs> so it does have the non-money thing as well but you know create a body of work I'm proud of but equally I, I like being wealthy I enjoy money and I think those are things that I think artists and creatives struggle to say out loud and and as you said I mean I've spent a lot of uh, time and um, uh, uh, metaphysical energy on my relationship with money as probably many of us have to do to go through that journey to become a successful entrepreneur is that um, journey with money, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I meet a lot of people who uh, run their own business, and when we discuss, you know, fees or whatever, they say, "Well, the thing is that I, I just do it because I love it. You know, I love it, so I don't really need to be paid. You know, what you charge, for instance, you know, to, to do. It. I don't. I say I don't charge what I charge because I hate it." and i need to be compensated i charge what i charge because that's its worth um you can love it and it can be a huge worth if you don't think it's a huge worth then don't charge so much for it But it's nothing to do with loving it and i think this is one of the other mindset shifts about leaving corporate is that i mean people actually call salary their compensation sorry hang on a minute. It, it is their compensation for the sacrifice that they have made for their work for their company but it's but you what you charge a client or what you charge for your books or whatever it is that you however you make money you're not charging to compensate you you're charging for its value for its worth to somebody else and 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 you can charge more if it's worth more it doesn't have to have been more work for you it doesn't have had to it doesn't have to have been blood sweat and tears fr- from you yeah it doesn't it doesn't have to have been any kind of sacrifice <laughs> You're charging what it's worth, and that's the end of the conversation,
0: really. Mm. And I think it's it is different for um, when you're selling your time uh, as a coach versus um, uh, books, for example, because of course you can't change the the price of the book once it's out, but you're looking at volume sales, for example. So I'm really interested in your business model. Um, most full time creatives don't make their money from one source, and I certainly don't. And I like the multiple stream of income approach. So how does your, how are your streams of income working uh, at this point?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think relying on – I know some people that have one product and that's, that's their thing and they put all their energy behind it. I think that's quite scary. Um, so I think having a few different sources which feed you at different times of year and under different circumstances is helpful. So the speaking, uh, keynote speaking, I'm a conference speaker. I speak about leadership. Um, that is a big chunk of my income and I'm really proud to say that I never thought that I would be a paid speaker, um, even though it's something that I love to do, it seems like a hard thing to get into, but actually if you're a, a really good speaker and you have something very interesting to say and you market yourself well through, in my case, speaker agents, although you don't have to use them, you can do it yourself, um, there's pros and cons, but it's slightly relevant. Uh, but, but it, you know, if you, if you love to do that, then being able to make money as a speaker is a dream. So a, a proportion 30, 40% of my income comes from speaking. Um, then there's my corporate coaching and kind of, so that's one-to-one coaching and team coaching. Uh, that's, the other big chunk of income. And again, I've built that reputation over 20 years. So that's pretty consistent. Now, enough people know about me that the phone rings most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I have to be a bit more proactive to keep that network alive and grow it and that sort of thing. But it's it's pretty solid, that business. And then the, the third aspect is a brilliant gamble which is the uh, courses and and, um, resources that help people to transition out of corporate world and into their own running their own venture. And that's really, really new. So there is some income coming from it, but the cost of that business is greater than the income at the moment. And that kind of makes sense in a way that you think to yourself, what do I need? It's a bit like the poster on your wall. You know, what do I need to invest in today that, is gonna cost me more than it makes in the short term. But the idea is that I create something really sustainable for the medium to long term. And for me, you know, with my lifestyle and my age and just things that I want to do with my life, having a business that in two, three years' time is generating relatively passive income. I mean, there's as as you said when you were on my show, there's no such thing as passive income, really. Um, you've worked very hard for it, and you continue to work for it. But something that doesn't require me being in the room delivering something live uh, that that feels that feels very important to me, and I think it's worth the investment upfront.
0: Oh yeah, and um, I mean, you have a number of books. Um, what what part do books play in your business, or have they played, or will they play?
1: Yeah. So I was writing books at a time when, uh, you didn't self publish. I mean, nobody did unless no one would buy their book, you know, unless, unless a publisher wasn't interested. So, um, so I always had a publisher, I had an agent and still have an agent actually, and I had publishers. And so I'd be paid in advance. Very nice. Um, and then I'd be paid royalties, obviously. Um, In fact, for me, the books were never about making money. Um, And that might seem like a strange thing to say, particularly now, because, I mean, someone like you is really able to make money out of it. And with self-publishing and all the other kind of spin-off business around being a a writer, it really is possible to make a a really decent amount of money from writing now. Um, And from blogging and all the other kinds of ways that you can earn money from writing. But for me, it wasn't about that. It was about credibility and um, and standing out from the crowd. And so, although I could have self published at that time, it did exist. It just wasn't very popular. I thought it's more important that I have a publisher because that says to my corporate my corporate clients and to my corporate audiences this person was published someone recognized her as an expert in this field. And I think there's lots of reasons to write a book. Writing a book is really hard. I mean, your listeners will know this. I'm sure you have talked about it a million times. That writing a book is hard um, for all kinds of reasons. So you need to have a pretty compelling reason to finish a book, and and I don't mean the first draft, I mean all the stuff that comes after the first draft, all the rewrites, all the sifting through, you know, I remember my first publisher um, sent back the manuscript and said, right, we've now typeset it and everything, we need you to write two extra paragraphs in this chapter, and three more lines in this chapter, because the, it needs to go over onto the next page. <laughs> and I was thinking if I had anything else to say about this topic I would have said it I don't don't have anything else to say and so I ended up sort of waffling for a paragraph to push the text over onto the next page so that a new chapter would start on the on the left-hand page just horrible I mean I don't have an attention to detail that kind of thing just made my brain melt um so there's lots of things about writing books that are Um, And you have to have some kind of compelling reason. For me, the fact that I, in my intro, I I give, when I give a speech, the, um, the person introducing me has a little intro that I've written that they read um, aloud to the audience. And one of the things it says is three times published author Blair Palmer, and there's basically nothing better than that for getting the audience ready to trust you and believe that you know what you're talking about
0: Mm. and uh, yeah i think you're right that as a a professional speaker as as you are um you know sometimes it is more about a business card than um earning money just with the book itself so that is definitely a business model for for speakers so that's fantastic we're almost out of time so tell us what can people find at a brilliant what's your focus there and also on your on your podcast
1: yeah so a brilliant is all about helping people to quit their job and do something they love for a living instead um it's for reluctant entrepreneurs and um, people that are just ready for a for a change it's called a brilliant gamble for a reason it is a bit of a gamble but it's also a brilliant one and um, the the point of the programs that i'm running over there and the the resources there's tons of free stuff there's the podcast there's articles and more articles coming all the time is to make it less of a gamble to make it so that even if you are slightly risk intolerant and even if you know you've been in corporate life for a long time so this is something very very different for you that that you can leave that job and start your business with with confidence knowing that you you did it in a really thorough way and you feel like you have something that you can make a success of and that some of these things that are going to be new to you like like networking, like social media, like some of the mindset shifts, y- you know what to expect. And um, th- that's the idea, really. So there's a, 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 a programs on there, courses on there, and more to come to really help with that transition and to support you in the early days of your new business.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Blair. That was great. Thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Blair today. And if you want to become a full-time creative, what can you do to prepare for the transition? What do you need to put in place before you make the jump, especially if you are as risk-averse as I am? So next week, I'm talking to Kat Rose about the creative introvert, which outlines how you can build a business that suits your personality, including the difficult topic of pitching when you are an introvert, whether that's for a podcast interview, or at literary or networking events. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.